Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Henry Coles about the scientific method. I suspect many of us had the experience of being told that scientific investigation follows a series of simple steps. In middle school science class, I was taught to ask a question, formulate a hypothesis, develop an experiment to test that hypothesis, observe the result, and then rinse and repeat. But I also suspect that many of our listeners will think such a simple, almost algorithmic process cannot possibly capture all the creativity, richness, and diversity that real scientific research actually requires. So how did we come to think that there could be such a thing as a scientific method? That is the question that Henry Cole sets out to answer in his new book. Henry gives us what might be described as the prehistory, or perhaps the deep history of this idea, this myth that the practice of science can be reduced to a simple set of steps, a method that even school children can learn to perform in their studies. In telling this story, Henry Coles takes us on a journey back to early 19th century England, where natural philosophers such as James Hutton and William Hewell debated about the role and value of speculation, or what they came to call the hypothesis, in scientific research. From there, we learn how the young Charles Darwin imbibed these ideas and found them suffused throughout nature. Next, Henry takes readers into the history of comparative psychology and through that across the Atlantic into the United States, where American pragmatists such as Charles Sanders Peirce picked up on these evolutionary accounts of human psychology and built a whole new philosophy around them. It was this pragmatic vision of evolutionary psychology Henry Cole shows us that eventually got codified into the canonical expression of the scientific method that so many of us were taught in school. Henry Coles has written a fabulous book. It's deeply learned and beautifully written, rich in detail, subtle in interpretation, and elegant in expression. So it's wonderful to be able to speak with its author himself. Henry Coles, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for having me, Lucas. So I wanted to start by congratulating you on the publication of The Scientific Method and ask you about what could be described maybe as, well, first of all, the title of the book, The Scientific Method, and ask you about what could be described maybe as kind of the school book articulation or school book interpretation of The Scientific Method, which is kind of how you start the introduction to your book as well. So could you tell us a little bit about what the school book articulation of The Scientific Method was? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one interesting thing, thing about writing a book that ends up getting titled The Scientific Method is that, uh, first of all, you hear things like, congratulations on publishing The Scientific Method, which is funny, but you also encounter all the different uh, you know, senses that people have of what the scientific method means. And so what I wanted to do when I started the book out was be very specific about the one that I was talking about. Um, and so what I have in mind here is if you went to primary school, secondary school, in the United States, but really in a ton of places around the world, uh, there was probably a poster in a science classroom or even in a general classroom with a set of steps that had the scientific method on the top. And those steps, they vary from poster to poster. The number varies occasionally, but they usually involve things like, number one, ask a question. Number two, formulate a hypothesis. Number three, design an experiment. Number four, test the hypothesis with the experiment. And number five, figure out whether your hypothesis was correct or not, you know, rinse and repeat. And that basic uh, five or six or seven step method, right, which is teachable to 10 year olds, which is reducible to a very few words on a numbered list, is what most people that I talk to tend to think the scientific method in quotes means. Now, that's like a very, you know, kind of a very general, very basic sense of what the scientific method is. What you learn, though, is that there are all other meanings of the scientific method out there. That's the one that I had in mind, that kind of canonical, posterized, um, often child-oriented, simplistic method 
that's the one that I wanted to find the history of. Um, and you also say, though, that this kind of algorithmic, very simplistic articulation of the scientific method, maybe ironically, fails to actually capture what goes on when scientists do research. So why doesn't this particular version of the scientific method offer a good kind of explanation or description of what really goes on inside of a scientific laboratory? I think, um, you know, at a certain level, here, here's how I would say it. At a certain level, of course, it describes what scientists do. So if you reduce, if you were to follow a scientist around a laboratory, or if you were to go to a scientific conference or interview a number of scientists practicing today, and then really try to reduce down what you're observing or what they're talking about to a bare bones set of steps, you could probably produce a list more or less like this one. The problem with that is that, A, you lose a ton of the, what actually makes science science in the process. So the complexities, the recursiveness, the fact that you have to go back, that you don't always start at the beginning and go to the end, right? It's Science is not a linear process or even a tightly circular process in the way that a lot of those posters imply. So while you could reduce it, the things you would be removing by reducing it are some of the stuff that historians and philosophers of science really want to get after, that they really want to understand. So that's the first problem that, you, you know, by reducing, you're losing a lot of the kind of um, human interesting dimensions of what makes science science. But on the flip side, by reducing it so far to this very, very basic set of steps, you would actually end up including a lot of things in, you know, under that same description that probably for various reasons we wouldn't want to call science. Um, and that can be everything from more humanistic ways of knowing to general problem solving by, you know, anyone in the world, by children, by non-human animals even, right? So by reducing all the way down to you know, having a question, reflecting on what might solve or solve the question or solve the problem, and then trying to solve it in a variety of ways, you're actually then not only missing out on things that make science science, but including a whole range of other human and non-human behaviors under that basic umbrella that, like I said, um, for various reasons, one might not want to include if what one is after is an account of what makes science science. Yeah, so it's kind of... Um sort of very essentialist understanding of what science is and thereby kind of reducing it to this, this very rich practice to this kind of impoverished description of it. Uh, in the introduction to your book, you describe this set of steps, this school book interpretation as a, a type of myth, a kind of myth of what science is. Why has this particular myth been so powerful? Do you think? Well, I think um, part of the answer to that question is that, uh, has to do with a period that comes after the period that I write about in the book. So what I did in the book is I said, okay, where does this method come from? As it happens, a, a version of the method comes from a little book that the philosopher and psychologist John Dewey published in 1910. And the historian of education, John Rudolph, has actually also just published a book about what happens to that method after Dewey publishes it. So basically how this five-step method gets taken up by textbook authors, gets put on posters, and becomes the myth that we know it as today. So in a way, the answer to the question of like, why does it achieve this mythic status is a 20th century answer, whereas the book that I tell goes the other way. It says, okay, back in the 19th century, how did this particular way of thinking about science evolve from a period in which there was no single scientific method to its kind of ascendance in the early 20th century? But to give you a version of what Rudolph might say, there's a series of flashpoints in the history of what you might call the public understanding of science or what used to be called the public understanding of science across the 20th century, in which science needed to be defended or it was perceived as needing defense by a range of actors. And the method ended up being a place that those defenders could point to say, this is science as a means of differentiating it from what they feared, which was either political involvement or pseudoscience. And sometimes those two things went together. So the, the, the kind of mythic status of the single method is a 20th century story about the effort to keep politics out of science, whereas the 19th century story that I tell actually begins with a recognition that science was always political, just that it wasn't partisan. And that distinction ended up really mattering in the 19th century story that I tell. But in the 20th century, of course, being political and being partisan get conflated. And the idea becomes that science is a value-neutral instrument that shouldn't be polluted by this idea of politics out in the wider world. Yeah, fascinating. 
So your book, in many ways, can be read as a kind of prehistory of this school book interpretation of the scientific method. So I wanted to ask you to kind of set the scene and take us back to the beginning of the story as you tell it, which is a, a debate that took place in the early 19th century among a number of English writers, thinkers, philosophers, you might even say historians, about what scientific knowledge is, what it was, and how it was made. Can you tell us a little bit about what this debate was, who was involved in the debate, what the stakes of the debate were? Sure. So the um, the the book, uh, you know, after beginning with an introduction, as books uh, do, uh, closer to the present, we zoom back to the 1820s and 1830s uh, in England. And this is a period uh, which, for all sorts of reasons that we can get into, has a genealogical relationship to the method that uh, that Dewey prints in 1910. So you can tell a kind of a complicated and blurry uh, story getting us from 1820 and 1830 to 1910. But why start there? What's going on in that moment? Well, as I argue in the book, what you're seeing in that 1820s, 1830s moment, the kind of very early part of the Victorian period, is a return of this scientific tool that had been for the better part of a century, more or less forbidden in English science. And that tool was the hypothesis. So especially in the wake of uh, the French Revolution and British, broader British anxieties about France and French influence, there was this idea that the hypothesis and hypothetical thinking generally was too speculative and what that often meant was too French. That there was something about it that was, that was somehow airy, un-British, ungrounded, and emerged from the mind in this kind of pure Cartesian way, which was being opposed pretty stiffly by British thinkers at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. And what you see in this 1820s and 1830s moment is a kind of softening of that opposition, which ends up making a certain kind of new political sense in that moment. So the book begins by tying the kind of reemergence of the hypothesis as a legitimate scientific tool in Britain to a shift in British politics, which makes room for the kind, not exactly revolution, in fact, not specifically not revolution, but revolutionary sentiments, one might say, in the context of a reform politics, which was all about balance. So the idea in the 1830s in particular was that the British way forward, politically, socially, intellectually, was always going to balance the revolutionary impulses that had been observed in France at the end of the 18th century with something more conservative that was often in the 19th century associated with German romantic thought. So Britain and British thinkers were kind of self-consciously positioning themselves as a kind of halfway point between extremes. And that's the moment in which the hypothesis comes to serve this role of being revolutionary, speculative, the origin of a certain kind of creative thinking, but not too creative. Still one that could be grounded, tested, and kind of pushed back against by a conservative tendency that was taken to be a part of science as well. I love that. Creative, but not too creative. Right, exactly. In your your book, you have this wonderful phrase that I think you describe it as a dynamic equilibrium. So this attempt to sort of, yeah, capture this balance that always seems to be slipping through our fingertips. Another word or phrase that you use that I wanted to ask you about that I thought was really interesting is something you describe as the, quote, Whig interpretation of science. Can you tell us about what you meant by Whig interpretation of science? Sure. So there's a um, there's a, a famous essay turned turned book in, in the context of history, the Whig interpretation of history, which is all about um, it, it actually ends up playing a really big role in the historiography of science in particular. And the idea is quite simple, that there emerged in this early 19th century moment, lasting through into the 20th century, a quote unquote Whig tendency. And we'll come back to that in a second to write history as though it was always preordained to culminate in one's own political views. So it was a progressive narrative of history from a a supposed dark ages up through to the crowning achievement, which was um, supposed to be oneself or one's political allies, right? And that was a way of telling history that was political, that, that kind of marshaled a certain version of history or the philosophy of history to one's own side and made it all seem inevitable that one's party would be in power. Now, this was associated by the person who coined the phrase, Herbert Butterfield, with the Whigs, who were a political, you know, a long-lasting political party, but that actually died out in the 19th century. In this 1830s moment, they're on the ascendant. So this is a this is a party of of elites. It, it has a, a somewhat something of a broad base, and you might 
you know, in today's terms, these are dangerous analogies, but you might analogize it to something like a centrist Democrat. So, you know, progress is being made. We need to make that progress carefully. And the way to do that is to try to reach across the aisle, to, you know, to hold some principles very firmly, but not to be too extreme, right? To kind of try to make your way forward. This should sound familiar politically in the context of the run-up to the 2020 election, for example, right? This, this dilemma of moderation that was associated in the 1830s with this Whig party, right? This is supposed to be a new way forward that somehow cut the difference between the extreme right and the extreme, what we would now call the extreme left, right? Revolutionary politics in Britain at the time. And so the Whig interpretation of science, unlike the Whig interpretation of history, is meant to imply that a lot of those people that I was just alluding to, right? This generation in the 1830s who are welcoming the hypothesis back in in this careful way, share a politics, like a capital P politics, which is about reforming the polity through, again, a very similar careful balancing of revolutionary or radical impulses with more conservative uh, caution or care. Hypotheses versus fact gathering, something like that. Right. Or hypotheses versus just brutal testing. So you can have any hypothesis you want as long as you test it as rigorously as you possibly can. Yeah, fascinating. So I want to move forward in the story slightly and ask you about Darwin. So as we move from the early 19th century into the mid 19th century, your narrative moves from these philosophers, historians of science, people like William Kuehl and John Herschel, to a particular naturalist who had such a profound impact on the history of science, Charles Darwin, and the theory of evolution. So how did the debate about method intersect with Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection? It's a, it's, a, it's a really important question. And in fact, it doesn't require us to go too far into the future. So the, the part of Darwin's career that I focus on most attentively uh, is this period in the 1830s. So he famously is on a um, five-year voyage on the Beagle in the beginning of that decade as a young man. He returns uh, to England in 1836 uh, and is living in London for, for the, you know, the latter part of that decade. And this is when he does most of the things that we associate with him. Yeah, obviously, he doesn't publish The Origin of Species for another 20 years, but this is the period in which he's gathering up all the specimens that he's collected on the Beagle, consulting with experts. By the end of the decade, he's formulated a rough version of the theory of evolution by natural selection, though there's a complicated story from this moment forward to its publication in 1859 that I'd be happy to talk about. Uh, but in this 1830s moment, he is one of those wigs. He's right in that world communicating with John Herschel, who you mentioned, not really communicating with William Huell, but in that network of people who are thinking about the nature of science, even as he's like hurriedly, somewhat secretively starting to produce this theory that would revolutionize the life sciences over the course of the 19th century. So what I say about Darwin in, in that chapter, the chapter that you're referring to, is that these two activities went hand in hand. He was thinking about how to be a good scientist, about what to do about this outrageous theory that he was gradually developing in the latter part of the decade, at the same time as he was thinking about the natural world, right? Thinking about how species changed, thinking about how it all fit together, what could make sense of the strange things he had, he had seen on his voyages, and especially the strange things that he was coming to realize were out there once he got back to London. And so you, you really, he couldn't, you can't understand either the development of the method over the 19th century or the development of Darwin's theory of natural selection, except in tandem, is the claim of that chapter, that they go hand in hand, and they go hand in hand so firmly that, uh, as the end of the chapter argues, he actually takes that method, the method that's just becoming the kind of Whig interpretation of science, the balancing of hypotheses and testing, and turns it into an account of the natural world. So the method that he picks up from, from John Herschel, one of his mentors, this idea that you can have wild, speculative, creative hypotheses. It's just the ones that work that will stick around. We have to abandon the ones that don't work. That should sound very familiar to anyone who has even the basics of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, right? That random variations occur according to one logic and then are brutally selected from in the context of the environment, right? And so it's the ones that are fit are the ones that survive. That tautology, right? The survival of the fittest, uh, which is coined by Herbert Spencer, actually applies in a way first to this account of science that Darwin was picking up in the 1830s. So nature, not just as a pigeon fancier, but as a kind of experimental scientist. 
Exactly. And there's a, you know, there's a way of thinking about this. And this is how I try to ground it in some of these broader conversations. Darwin is, you know, Darwin is brought up in a world in which uh, so-called natural theology is the name of the game, right? His mentors train him in that way of seeing things. And the basic idea is familiar uh, from something like William Paley's watchmaker analogy. So the idea that Paley puts out in the early part of the 19th century is, you know, you imagine you're walking across a heath and you strike your foot upon a watch, a wristwatch, you pick it up, a pocket watch probably in 1802. And when you pick it up, you think, oh, this must have, this came from somewhere. This must have a maker. Someone designed this. I wonder how it got here. And what Paley says is you should have exactly the same reaction when you strike your foot upon a stone, right? That the world is shot through with God's will and with divine agency, that everything out there in the natural world is the result of some plan. And that's, that's, the, that's the kind of model that Darwin grows up with. He retains parts of it, even according to his own reflections through his whole life. And what the chapter argues is that he shifts in the 1830s, not so much uh, in his kind of secularization or an abandonment of religion, though that's a part of the story over the course of his career, but in how he thinks about the divine mind that produced these objects. He begins with this more doctrinaire, paleite view of God, perfect adaptation, this idea that things are out there for a reason, and ends up rewriting nature as, as you say, a kind of natural philosopher or an experimenter, right? A tinkerer. Yeah, fascinating. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between this argument that you're making about Darwin and an argument that has often been made by other historians that I suspect some of our listeners will be familiar with. I'm thinking of people like Adrian Desmond, for example, who saw Darwin as more or less, this might be putting it slightly to, this might be me oversimplifying the argument a little bit, but kind of projecting Victorian, liberal Victorian ideas about political economy, and in fact, quite radical ideas about political economy onto the natural world. So a kind of capitalist, proto-capitalist conception of nature. Whereas in your book, the argument is that nature isn't so much a political economy, but more like a kind of natural philosopher. So I'm wondering what you see as the relationship between these two types of interpretations, whether you see them as competing with one another, whether you think they're compatible with one another, how you sort of understand your claim about Darwin uh, in relative to the claims of people like Adrian Desmond. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, one of the places that people like Adrian Desmond or Piers Hale uh, kind of set down some of their analysis, which is totally on point and well taken, is in political thinking or political economic thinking in the period. So there's a lot of attention to... uh, you know, the work of Malthus and this idea that, um, and, you know, Darwin is the kind of origin of this idea that it was in reading uh, the essays of Malthus and thinking about, uh, you know, a kind of Hobbesian world of the war of all against all that helped him kind of click everything in the, into place for his theory. And that, you know, Malthus's theory that there was always going to be um, a tragic, uh, incompatible relationship between the multiplication of the population and the availability of food so that it would always produce this like terrible wedging where people were constantly going hungry and where competition was just a rule of life, right? This kind of familiar uh, Victorian liberal or pre-Victorian really liberal idea. Um, there's always been a kind of, th- that's that's a huge part of Darwin's self-understanding about the development of his, of his theory. What I would say is that, you know, the first person to... Um, to pick up on this dimension, right? That Darwin is kind of writing that political reality onto the natural world besides Darwin himself is of course, Karl Marx, um, who in a series of letters exchanged with Friedrich Engels is very explicit about this. They pick up a very early copy of the book. They're entranced by it. They see it as a kind of um, scientific or natural historical equivalent of the political philosophy that they're building together. But eventually, uh, and I can't remember offhand if it's Marx or Engels, who says that they find in that Darwin finds in the natural world his, you know, kind of bourgeois Victorian politics. That he's just he's he's you know applying it to the natural world inappropriately. And what I say in the in the chapter is that um, there's it should really not be surprising at all that he was doing this. Uh, not least because the method that he was using was the same, you know, made this kind of political sense. It had this political salience in the period. So he's got, there's a kind of, um, uh, like, I think it's called Maslow's hammer, right? This idea that to the man with the hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
there's a version of this going on in this Darwin story where he's living in a world that's kind of soaked through with this idea of balance and equilibrium. And so what I would say differentiates my interpretation of the kind of politics of nature that Darwin has is that I see it as less radical uh, than someone like Desmond or Hale even might see it as, right? And I think they both focus on more radical contemporaries of Darwin who are who do in fact embody a more radical politics. And instead I see it as this kind of desperate attempt to fit in or to, you know, to find this very British balance that Marx was kind of spot on about. You know, he did find it there. And it's not just that he found the society of England, uh, as I think he says, in the natural world, but he found its science there too. That the science that he was practicing was looking back at him from the animals and plants that he had collected. And I think that emphasis on the kind of go-between status of science, right, as the thing that Darwin was most anxious about in the moment, saves us from having to make the claim that Darwin was an extremely engaged political thinker, which some have made, but which others have questioned. So tell us a little bit about the history of trial and error. Where does this idea come from, and how does it figure into your story about the history of the scientific method? So trial and error is a is a is kind of hard to wrap one's one's um, one's mind around historically. W- what we mean by it today, and perhaps this is obvious to everyone, is a kind of version of what we just spelled out. Right? It's the kind of kernel of that five step scientific method. You try something, you see if it works. If it doesn't, you try something else. And if it does, you build on it. Right? And this is just a basic way of describing problem solving. Right? You're in your garage trying to solve a problem. You're probably using trial and error. What it's opposed to is something much more formal, much more rigorous, written down, something that has a set of rules, right? It's a kind of organic problem-solving approach. What the history reveals is that, in fact, it starts out the other way. Trial and error begins as a very formal mathematical tool that's taught to uh, youthful learners of arithmetic from the 18th century into the early 19th century. It's basically a way of solving fractional problems that would be much harder to do if you tried to work them out by rote. And so what you do is you pose a potential solution to the problem, solve backwards to see how far off you are from the actual solution, and then iterate so that you begin with this falsehood, right? This, this hypothesized answer that isn't actually the right answer, but it gets you to the correct answer, answer much quicker. So this is in arithmetic textbooks in the late 18th and early 19th century, as I said, And what you find uh, in the middle chapters of my book is that that formal rule, that basically trick that was taught to children um, as an arithmetic, as an arithmetic uh, solution, ends up getting kind of like Darwin's method transposed onto the mind by another generation of what you might call psychologists at this point, who are thinking about problem solving as a general behavior. So something that many of them probably learned in the context of arithmetic becomes, over the course of the middle decades of the 19th century, a generalized account of how problem-solving works as a whole. So I wanted to shift a little bit um, and ask about, so in the last roughly third of your book or so, you take the reader across the Atlantic from England, from Great Britain, into the United States, and look especially at the history of American pragmatism. So I want to follow that shift and ask you about how some of these psychological ideas that you were just mentioning, ideas about the way people in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, were thinking about the process of thinking, how that manifested itself in the early history of American pragmatism with people like Charles Sanders Peirce and others, and how those ideas in the United States ended up contributing to emerging thinking about the scientific method, what become called the scientific method. Yeah, sure. So this is, this is, as you know, a big shift, right? To the first three chapters of the book mostly focus on British figures and the second uh, three at the heart of the book mostly focus on American figures. Though, of course, there's a lot of stitching back and forth that goes on across the whole book. Um, the first thing to note about this kind of um, American pragmatic appropriation of this set of ideas is that the politics are slightly different. Um, I'm... I'm careful to kind of highlight the similarities and the differences. So, you know, 1830s London is not the same as 1860s Boston. Um, one of the ways that the rise of pragmatism itself has been interpreted uh, by Louis Menand, who, who wrote kind of wrote the book on the subject, The Metaphysical Club, is specifically in, in more or less national political terms, which is to say, in the wake of uh, the American Civil War, 
there's this desire for a kind of balance, for a lack of extremes, right? For a focus on on the everyday and for avoiding what had just occurred, a kind of a, a national healing uh, in his in his argument. And that's the context in which pragmatism emerges. Now, you know, there are ways that one could um, dispute that particular claim, uh, highlighting more of the transnational connections. Uh, and I don't think Manan would would argue with that. I think he's, you know, I think there are every thing as complex as a, as a um, broad-based philosophy shared by a generation of people is going to have multiple causes. But in this context, it's the balancing act that Darwin achieved in that natural selection theory that ends up starting to get applied in the context of comparative psychology, including by him in The Descent of Man and the Expression of the Emotions in the 1870s. But it gets applied by a new generation of people to all sorts of organisms, to humans, to non-human animals, to comparisons between them. Evolution becomes this kind of key for thinking about why we think the way we do and how progress might occur in our collective thinking. And that's the piece of it that the American pragmatists pick up. So Charles Sanders Peirce, who you mentioned, William James also, a cohort of people that emerges in the late 1860s and early 1870s in this kind of penumbra around Harvard University who are thinking really carefully about the possibility of applying evolutionary theory to human affairs, right? As many people are. This is the wider context of social Darwinism, of course, and the kind of prelude to a certain kind of eugenic thinking. But in that moment, what I argue they're looking for is an account of creativity that is beholden to the actual world, right? To the limitations that we have on our own cognition and to the things that we're trying to think about. And it's that context in which Darwin's particular approach, right, this kind of give and take or dynamic equilibrium makes intellectual and political sense for some of the reasons that Manand highlights, for other reasons that uh, the historian and philosopher Trevor Pierce argues about pragmatism, right, that there's this kind of moment for a similar kind of balance, but with different political and intellectual stakes in the United States. One thing that I found particularly interesting in reading your book was the account that you give of uh, Charles Sanders Peirce's logic, and in particular, his ideas about what he called abduction, so a kind of inference to the best explanation. How did that fit into, these logical ideas fit into Peirce and other pragmatists' reading of evolutionary theory? In a complicated way, as I'm sure you can imagine. Peirce is a, um, is a notoriously brilliant, but also thorny uh, thinker and writer. And it's, you know, it takes, there are many wonderful scholars who've taken whole careers unpacking exactly what he was saying at which moment. Um, I would say from the perspective of this book and this question of method, Peirce comes in in two ways. The first is he's one of the very first characters that you meet right off the way uh, in the introduction because he gives a name to the period that I adopt, which is this called the age of methods. The idea being that there's this kind of efflorescence of different scientific disciplines and of attention to methodology itself. And so Peirce is, you know, wants to make his name in that area. Logic is one part of that broader conversation of methods, but so is the empirical observation of how scientists actually work and the psychology of everyday cognition, right? All of these things are a part of how method with a capital M is being rethought uh, in the middle decades of the 19th century. And so that's, that's where we kind of meet Peirce. But where we get to his logic is actually a really interesting um, kind of dilemma in the scholarship on Peirce. So Peirce is often taken, correctly, because he, he says this himself a number of times, to be anti-psychologistic as a logician. Uh, most logicians now are. And basically what that means is the kind of empirical facts of human cognition, how we think, you know, the kinds of heuristics that we use, our foibles, right, our habits, are really irrelevant to the science of logic mathematically understood. Right, that logic is somehow separate from those affairs. They come together, of course, in our attempts to do logic. But that logic, like mathematics, and there's obviously a whole dispute about the relationship between those two, doesn't have anything to do fundamentally with our limited, evolved, organic cognition and psychology. So that, that's the kind of starting point. Peirce is taken to be, um, and as I say, correctly, a kind of founder of this mathematical logic, right? And his work is still being used in important ways uh, in logic and the theory of logic today. But, and there's a big but here, the essays that make him famous, the essays that make him uh, kind of put pragmatism on the map, that, that are some of his most widely read essays, and certainly his most widely read essays today that he publishes in the 1870s, called Illustrations of the Logic of Science, 
are actually very psychologistic. So there he is in this kind of metaphysical club moment that Menand describes, trying to work out a connection between our limited, evolved, you know, um, fallible cognition and the, the kind of principles and rules of logic. And it's in that context that he arrives at this, uh, the method of abduction that you mentioned, which is neither induction or deduction, as its name implies, but is instead more closely associated with what, as you say, philosophers now call inference to the best explanation, which in its very, very briefest form is basically a version of guess and check, right? It requires taking this stab at a possible solution and then gathering evidence to see whether it works. It's basically the scientific method we were talking about before, and Peirce works it out in the context of trying to build an evolutionary logic in the 1870s. Like an educated guess. Oh, yeah. And so there, there is a, there's a really important question here. I don't, I don't solve it. Uh, I think it's probably insoluble. But there's an important question, both among philosophers, among scientists, but also just kind of more broadly and even historically, about how educated one guess, one's guesses have to be, Right. It's probably not a good idea if we're thinking here normatively or politically to say anything goes in terms of guesses or hypotheses, right? Let's just take all the hypotheses from the population mm -hmm. and figure out how they work, right? We're seeing uh, versions of that argument being made now in the context of COVID. It's probably not a good idea. It's certainly not uh, a kind of time-sensitive way to pursue science and uh, scientific it's kind research. of a big data approach, you might say, actually. Well, there's a whole question there, and I, I do allude to this in that chapter on Purse about whether which parts of this could be mechanized, right? And there there is a school of thought in the big data world that you know big swaths of what we now consider to be you know human centered scientific reasoning will be automated, including potentially the production of hypotheses, which is its own you know dilemma. But in this context, I think there is probably an argument for educated guesses, what's fascinating in the context of this Darwinian uh, argument, right? This kind of the, the way that pragmatists relied on Darwin's theory of evolution, as opposed to someone like Spencer's, is that Darwin probably would have militated against the idea of the educated guess. Now, if he actually had to come down to it, he would have admitted that certain people are better at coming up with hypotheses because they've been exposed to the data in certain ways. And that's probably what we mean by an educated guess. But he was very clear that the cycles of causation that lead to variations on the one hand and selection on the other are different. They're distinct. They're related. But at the level of analysis we're talking about, you have to treat them as separate. So the ideas, the hypotheses, they come from somewhere, but they're spontaneous. They're random. And what he meant by that is not that they are absolutely random. It could be that the world is you know, physically determined and nothing is random. But in the context of thinking about you, Lucas, trying to solve the problem of how to tie your shoes... The ideas you come up with for how to tie them, and then your successful or unsuccessful attempts to tie them are separate, right? The ideas come from somewhere, we don't know where, and the solutions are in this other sphere of causation. And that, that separation, which is so important to the pragmatists, is distinct from something like Spencer, who would be more Lamarckian in this regard, and who would say, no, 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 the variations actually depend upon the experience of testing them, that there's a kind of recursive loop, right? That there's the inheritance of acquired characteristics that we can somehow become better at producing variations over time once we see how successful or unsuccessful they are. This is so fascinating. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. One of them is, this sounds to me a lot like what later on by logical empiricists comes to be called the context of discovery versus the context of justification. Is exactly. there a connection there? There yeah, is. Okay. Well, so... It's a really good question. Whether uh, Reichenbach, who we mostly associate the distinction between context of discovery and justification, uh, has a kind of genealogical relationship to the pragmatists, for example, I don't know. It, it would not surprise me at all. The kind of tendrils of Peirce and James especially are extremely deep and extremely wide-ranging. Um, so uh, Husserl famously was influenced by James and Peirce alike and then ends up influencing Heidegger in this way that ends up shaping a different school of uh, philosophy and philosophy of science in continental Europe, there's, you know, there's a, there's a much larger story to be told about that wider uh, context. But in terms of the kind of hard distinction between discovery and justification, I think you are seeing a version of that here in the pragmatic method. Now, both discovery and justification have a set of questions that one needs to ask about, for example, how social they are, right? So is this all happening in the mind of one person or is justification fundamentally a social process? And it's about publication and publishing standards and peer review. Is that right? And that's often what people start to fold into 
accounts of what makes science science today, right? Oh, we have we have this we have double blind review. We have all these different systems. We have you know a system of reporting whether you have a bias or not, right? All of that stuff is meant to be a kind of social answer to problems that might plague the scientific method. But in this 19th century moment, what you're getting is a kind of I would say ambiguous sociality. Science is fundamentally social. Purse is the first person to say, you know, Purse would be the first person to say, no single person does science. It's a huge collective endeavor that spans generations. It will never be, it will never be completed, right? It's this huge, beautiful machine that he was a part of. But they're also- a machine looking, or an organism? Anyway. <laughs> he, he uses both. And that, that gets back okay. to the machine because he did, he did at, um, in, in a very kind of complicated way while he was at Johns Hopkins for about a year, attempt to build into machines the capacity for scientific reason. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, it's still a complicated question today, though I think there are a couple different groups. One of them is at MIT, who claim to have produced essentially robot scientists. One of them is named Adam. Adam supposedly came up with a hypothesis, right? There's, I mean, there's a whole conversation, as I alluded to before, to be had about mechanism here. But I think Peirce was someone who was torn between mechanical and organic metaphors in this regard. It's both organic and mechanical, and fundamentally, it's human for him, right? Which is which means that it's partly both. Which kind of reminds me again of this, um, uh, what did you call a trial trial and error technique, which was this kind of algorithmic approach initially. But anyway, um, I, I want to move on a little bit and talk about sort of end the conversation by talking a little bit about John Dewey and how. John Dewey, a later pragmatist, uh, brings some of these ideas about method, about thinking, about psychology into the everyday context that you were alluding to a little bit earlier in, in your response to one of my questions, and in particular into the classroom. So if you could talk a little bit about how John Dewey sort of figures into the story. Yeah. So the, um, the, the book ends with John, I mean, the book begins with John Dewey and it ends with John Dewey in a way that so there's a, there's a kind of, um, tentative conclusion that doesn't have much to do with Dewey. Um, but the lead up to the publication of that book that I alluded to before, a little book called How We Think by Dewey that he publishes in 1910, which has this five-step list in it, is two decades of research in child psychology that he's doing in the laboratory school that he founded at the University of Chicago in 1894-95. Um, now, he's already left uh, Chicago for Columbia by that point. The research continues, but the grounds for his claims about how science works, uh, right? He's a philosopher of science as well as being a psychologist, are are really there in the classroom and working with children. Um, you know, the the lab school, which is you know still a, a thriving, um, if complicated, institution uh, in Chicago, affiliated with the University of Chicago, was uh, sometimes we forget why it was called a laboratory or why it is called a laboratory, right? Um, it's it often the way that uh, the school and its proponents presented is that. It's a laboratory because students are doing laboratory work, right? They're engaging with their hands. They're learning by doing. They're doing this kind of progressive education model as it comes to be found, which is all about experimentation. And that is a really important sense in which the lab school was a lab. But there are, of course, two other senses as well, right? So the teachers who are working with the students on a day-to-day basis, Dewey wasn't one of them, but his wife was, are experimenting as well, right? They're supposed to be adaptive. They're supposed to change in the context of, of student interests or of student needs, right? It's experimental in exactly the same way as the children who are doing experiments at the bench, who are learning chemistry by cooking, for example. But it's also a laboratory, and this is really the most important sense, in the sense that it's Dewey's laboratory for ideas that he's developing in psychology and philosophy. And so both the behavior of the children, including his own children, and the teachers, including for a time his wife, are data out of which he's building or attempting to build an account of thinking in general, which is what he tries to epitomize in this little book that he publishes a decade later, uh, this book called How We Think. And so in a way, what you get is the kind of, he, he might argue that he doesn't bring these ideas to the classroom. Instead, he kind of builds them up out of the classroom. He sees these things at work in the classroom and is only writing them down. But we know all the way back to Darwin that scientists themselves are often not the most reflective at exactly what is motivating them or how they're doing what they're doing, right? That they're, they're doing it and they're doing it brilliantly. But that in fact, sometimes Darwin was famous for saying he never worked with a theory. He worked on true Baconian principles. He just gathered a lot of facts and then the theory occurred to him. We know as historians that kind of the opposite was true. He was constantly theorizing. He was constantly seeing the world through these... Agonizing over it. Yeah, and agonizing <laughs> over it, right? There's a whole, you know, so it would be... It would be um, 
it would be incorrect to take Darwin at his word about the, the origin of his theories. And the same would be true for Dewey, right? So Dewey had a stake in claiming that he needed this laboratory school in order to produce his philosophy, but he did come into that context with some of these ideas already in place. And the major one here is this idea of this balance, right? Of this kind of, of that we hypothesize that we're constantly interested, that we're motivated organisms who are taking in so much data from our environments, and that we test out our ideas intuitively, that children are actually better scientists in a way than high school students, and that we need to reteach people how to think scientifically because they knew it in their very earliest moments, and that something about the way that school works beats it out of them, that we lose the ability to think creatively, intuitively in an interesting or interested way because of the structure of society or of schools. And so his whole project is about remaking the polity or society to enable the kind of thinking that he sees as organic and best and the best suited to solving the problems of the day. And that thinking is this thinking that we can trace back to that 1830s moment, right? This kind of like give and take that's become over the course of the 19th century, extremely organic, rooted in evolutionary theory, a widespread account of the way that problem solving works even across the, the human non-human barrier. And that's the that's what Dewey is picking up in this 1890s moment and turning into an account of thinking in general. Yeah, this is so interesting. You're using the word organic. I don't know if Dewey himself would have used the word natural or not to describe this kind of thinking. But what struck me as being so fascinating about your account is the way that the story sort of loops into and out of nature, right? There's this conception of thinking that emerges uh, through a kind of debate about how, a normative debate about how scientific research ought to be conducted that is then read into the natural world and by the end of the book is sort of rediscovered in nature and used as a normative principle yet again to teach school children how they ought to, how we as adults and developing adults ought to be thinking or cultivating certain habits of mind so I want to end the conversation by asking you about something that in your introduction you describe as the looping effects of this kind of history. So how you see these sort of complicated tangled webs or tangled loops as being both operative in the past, but also how you implicate yourself in a kind of self-reflexive self or self-referential way as a historian into these tangled webs of back and forth looping. Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely important idea, not just to me, but to many historians of what we often call the human sciences, right? And this is partly because of the influence of uh, the philosopher and historian Ian Hacking, who, whose idea this looping effects notion is. Uh, so what Hacking calls the looping effects of humankinds is a really simple and really profound uh, kind of translation of an idea latent in the work of Michel Foucault. And the idea is, is pretty simple. In the human sciences in particular, labels are hatched by scientists, right? Ways of describing particular human behaviors. So um, hacking uses a lot of examples from psychiatry. And so what hacking says is the label schizophrenic or the label depressed gets applied to people, but people react to the labels that are applied to them. So if schizophrenic is meant to describe a particular set of behaviors or depressed or any of these other categories that come out of the human sciences are meant to describe human behavior. But in using them, you change the behavior you're describing because people either adopt or reject or change the labels as they're applied. Then you get this looping effect where now the person who came up with the label needs to redefine it because the behavior that they were describing has changed. And then now with the new redefined label, people are going to react to it in different ways. And so you can see how the cycle starts to emerge. And so what I do in the beginning of the book is I say, this applies historically in this 19th century moment to thinking about science itself, that this weird ragtag group of philosophers and psychologists and biologists are thinking really hard about how science does or should work. And by trying to apply new labels for coming up with new terms, William Huell famously coins scientist, this idea of abduction from purse, right? New evolutionary accounts of how science works or should work. Those end up having that same kind of looping interaction. So if I say, you got to be Baconian, someone's going to think about what that means and try to do it or not do it or reject it or try to adopt it wholesale. And then in doing that, I'm going to need to re-describe what it means to be a good, true Baconian. And that, that kind of looping is just going to happen over and over again. So there's something special hacking says about the human sciences. And what I've done is I've included this kind of reflective thinking about science as a form of the human sciences. 
It's part psychology, part biology, part philosophy. It doesn't really have a space in the disciplinary matrix as we know it today, but its advocates were trying to make one for it. So they were very consciously trying to produce what a lot of them called a science of science, which was going to have an extremely tightened or tangled version of this looping effect, right? Whereby making new claims about how science works, they're literally changing the conditions of possibility for their own work. And that looping just happens over and over again. So that's something that I trace it part of what explains some of the kind of arcing or looping of the narrative itself. But of course, that means that we have to include ourselves in the analysis as well. This isn't something that Hacking does as much, though he alludes to it in some of his books. This move to kind of be more self-reflective, to be thinking more carefully about the power of writing these kinds of histories is something that I pick up more, not from Hacking, but from the philosopher and feminist science studies scholar Donna Haraway. So Hacking and Haraway aren't often paired together in analysis, but if I get from hacking this kind of account of what happens cognitively and socially from the use of these labels, I get from Haraway this real emphasis on situatedness and upon on seeing yourself in the narratives that you're weaving. And, so, and you know, kind of being honest to the fact that we're all writing from a particular standpoint and that that affects the stories that we tell, right? Creating history as a kind of collective endeavor. And so by bringing those two things together, what we end up seeing is that when I label someone you know, a pragmatist or a proponent of the scientific method or a comparative psychologist as a historian, they're not reacting to me, right? They're dead. The people that I write about are dead. So they're not going to be pushing back or changing their behavior. But by thinking about the grounds for how we tell the stories that we tell about science, about how to tell stories about science that are more accurate to how scientists actually work and that might help promote science in the face of science denial, um, you know, which is especially important now more than ever, you start to see that the histories that we tell do have this looping effect in the sense that it's the history that is the grounds for what we do. It's the history that furnishes the analogies or helps us feel like we're part of a genealogy, right? Us as historians, but also scientists. And by telling history in new ways, and this is something that Haraway is very clear on, we enable certain possibilities, certain political actions in the present and disable others. And so it's that attention to how the labels that we use and the stories that we tell change the conditions for telling those stories and for acting upon them that I get out of this combination of uh, hacking and Haraway that I kind of begin the book with. Well, that's a wonderful way to end. So let's, let's leave it there. And thank you so much, Henry. And congratulations on this wonderful book, The Scientific Method. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks for having me.